are. Very good evening and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We are with you live for the next hour to receive and with your help of the Bible, answer your questions on God's Word, perhaps even Christian living, maybe uh, world uh, events and worldviews from a, from a Christian perspective. Really, any honest question that you have, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Word, the Bible, to find the answers. That's what we're all about here. There's several ways that you can join us and be part of the show today. But before um, I let you know those things, allow me to introduce our guest. My name is Dave Robson. I will be fielding your questions as they come on in. And with us today, Pastor Sean Richards, as is often the case. How are you doing today? Good. Interesting story. My grandfather had to get his hearing aids repaired. He hasn't heard from him since. Thank you, Sean. And speaking you. of dad jokes. Daily dad joke. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Daily dad, dad jokes. Daily dad jokes with Sean. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Peter Martin is back with us. First time back since having your little baby. Having a little oh, guy. Yeah. Leif. Yeah. Leif. Leif. Yes. How's, how's everything? Mother and baby well? Father well? Everyone's Oh, yeah. Yeah, well. everything's going great. Oh, I'm like great. half awake. You know, functioning yeah. off of an hour's sleep in three weeks. You yes, know, absolutely. But no, it's uh, it's been great. He's actually a really, really good baby. Yeah, it's good. Which is awesome. That's awesome. How a few weeks old now? Yeah, three weeks old. Three weeks old, man. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Well, we're glad you're back. Yeah, with us. I'm glad it's to good. be back. It's good to see you. Yeah, well, like I mentioned, you can join us in several ways. If you're hearing us and seeing us, then I guess you've already found a way. But let me give you some options. A Reason for Hope is a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find us on various platforms. If you go to Facebook, you'll find us there, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Uh, We have a website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live uh, tab. On YouTube, the name of the channel is A Reason for Hope. So look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Our email address, should you want to send us uh, uh, a question the old-fashioned way. I guess email is old-fashioned these days. I don't know. Uh, but it's <laughs> so old-fashioned so old but so yesterday uh, questions for hope at gmail.com that's questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com if you're listening to us on the radio you are listening to our last show pre-recorded so you'll want to use our email address and we'll get to that question on uh, our next show and consider when you can join us on one of the other platforms because we are live and the show is guided by your questions so I'd encourage you to get your questions in early sometimes we do ran out of time so send your questions in on the chat functions on those different platforms i mentioned as well we have a roku channel and an apple tv and we have an app as well if you look in your app store for calvary christian fellowship so you can watch us all those different ways multiple ways you can join us we always say fall back on our website if you have a technical issue with facebook or one of those platforms calvarychristianfellowship.com is a great place to fall back to uh, to watch the show so with all that said Without any further ado, Peter, you're back first time. Would you like to pray? Yeah, sure. For us before we move any further. Let's do it. Uh, Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you and how you care for us and love us in, in our lives. Lord, how you've accepted us as sons and daughters by the basis of your sacrifice. We pray that we would be able to dedicate this time to you, to studying your word and your truth, that we'd be able to apply it to our lives in an effective way, that we might honor and glorify you in your character. Mm. We're thankful for you, God, and in your name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. So Thursdays, you guys traditionally do rhetoric, uh, rhetoric Thursday. Yes. Rhetoric being the the art of public speaking. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys have something on your heart to share with us today before we get to questions? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, last couple of weeks, we've been talking about various things. We've talking about like attributing motive uh, is one bad logical fallacy, and and me and Sean are basically going through not only 
how to give public oratory, meaning how to give effective and convincing speeches. But more importantly, because most people don't do that uh, on a regular basis, it's more about dialectic, meaning how to convince other people of the truth, right? So it's not enough to know what is true. You need to be able to communicate it in a way that other people can accept, right? So we've been going through logical fallacies, ways that you can argue that are bad, that are toxic, that actually, even if you're right in what you're bringing up in your premise, you're wrong in the way that you're trying to communicate it. Uh, that That's what a logical fallacy is. It's just something that's wrong. So uh, over the, the last couple of weeks, I think we've talked about attributing motive. And we've also talked about the two quoque fallacies. So attributing motive is I am going to assume that there is some sort of a malicious intent in what you're doing, right? What you're saying or what you believe or something like that. Uh, the two quoque fallacy is a little bit different. It, it's a fancy Latin word. It basically just means I'm going to attack you as a person as opposed to your argument. Yeah. So uh, it would be like someone comes up and says, well, you know, the, the old playground insult. Well, this is what I think. Well, you, you know, your mother's stupid. You know, like that's the two quoque fallacy. I'm going to assassinate your character. I'm not going to deal with your objection. Uh, here we're going to talk about a little bit of a blend, right? This is a bit. This is a logical fallacy that's a blend of those two. Uh, it's called uh, claiming offense, essentially. So that would be I'm talking to someone, and they give an argument. They say something, uh, giving their perspective or giving their belief system, and I feel offended by what they're saying, and so I shut down the conversation by saying, "Well, that's offensive." Right? You're being offensive. You're not being inclusive right now in the way that you're talking to me. Uh, you're not really considering my feelings in the way that you're communicating with me. That would be uh, claiming offense, right? And this happens all the time. There's uh, actually a, a title for it in our modern vernacular. It's called cry bullies. <laughs> so people who are who are controlling and dominating communication or modes of communication, not through authoritative cruelty, but actually through playing the victim. Uh, crying and saying like, oh my gosh, I'm so offended by what you're saying. I can't believe that you've done this. You've traumatized me. You should be banned from this particular platform. You shouldn't have a, a ability to speak to me like that, right? So if this hasn't happened to you yet, uh, well, you know, good for you, but eventually it probably will in our modern culture and society. So uh, as we go forward, I'll talk more and more about how I've seen this implemented in my counseling, meaning uh, I've seen an increase of it as I've been counseling people in the last couple of years. And so we'll talk about what it looks like, how to address it, how to avoid making this mistake on your own and things to that nature. But before we get into all that, Sean, do you have anything to add or some biblical illustrations of this one being utilized? Yeah, there's a couple. And just for the sake of those listening, we need to clarify that the fallacy, the mistake in communication, when the goal is to try to communicate your point as clearly and as thoroughly as possible, there is a time to draw a line with people and say, because of the way you're approaching me, maybe they've resorted to ad hominem, they've continuously attempted what we call steamrollering or elephant hurling or any other mispronunciation of terms. All of these things would be grounds for you to say, this person isn't being objective. And because of their behavior, you shut down the conversation because it's not productive. This is not what we're talking about. Mm. When people come to you and, as you said, the cry bully tactic of saying that because I deem what you're saying is offensive, therefore you don't have the right to speak, that's different in the sense that they're attacking the argument with their emotional reaction of you or the argument rather than the argument itself. 
that's what we need to spot as the problem rather than setting healthy boundaries with people and judging someone as unobjective. Jesus in Matthew 7 noted not to cast your pearls before swine. That's not saying, well, they're a pig, therefore I'm not going to talk to them. No, it's saying, I judge you as unobjective. You're going to turn and tear me in pieces. I'm not going to cast something valuable to someone who doesn't appreciate it. So if we're going to ask the question, what would be an example of this kind of bad rhetoric, it would be most aptly illustrated in the Gospel of John chapter 6, where it literally says that his audience was offended at him. Now, what did they deem offensive? Well, John chapter 6 is a very lengthy passage, almost 70 verses, a little over it actually. And what was interesting in the flow of the conversation was an audience had shown Jesus that they were not there for his sake or even necessarily for the sake of what they had to gain from Jesus apart from food. He was teaching them there's something more important here. And they were offended at this when they didn't get their way with Jesus. They wanted physical food, and Jesus says, I'm offering you spiritual food. If you want the bread that comes down from heaven, and they go, ooh, are we going to taste manna? And he says, no, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they're like, still in stomach mode, right? I, how are we going to eat this guy? That That's not natural. And Jesus says, my words are spirit. The flesh profits nothing. But they were offended at this, and the majority of his disciples, his followers, left him at that point with the exception of the twelve. And interestingly enough, Judas even stuck around despite him calling him out as a devil. But the point being made is this. When Jesus had something to offer them, they deemed him insufficient for the agenda they had set for the conversation. The terms of the relationship were spelled out. This guy's a meal ticket. And to quote Doc Holliday, turns out they were the Antichrist. Little tombstone reference. So that's the issue at work. And there's other passages we talked about earlier today. The second letter to the Corinthians was them dismissing Paul as an apostle because he couldn't make it there in time. And they were offended by this and saying that, oh, we're too good for Paul, therefore let's invalidate everything that he's saying. They're not addressing the argument, they're replacing the argument with their emotional perception, or in this case, the insult they've determined from him. Now again, Paul wasn't being insulting. He goes on to clarify that. Jesus wasn't being insulting. The miracle was meant to verify his words, like God's word has always been throughout history. But the issue was, the mistake was, by claiming offense, the fallacy, the mistake was in just that. Because I'm personalizing, I'm insulted by the presentation you're giving me, therefore I dismiss the idea, whereas, to quote Ben Shapiro, the facts don't care about your feelings. It doesn't change reality. Mm-hmm. So in anything more to note or say on this, how do we deal with it? Yeah, so um, let me kind of break down why I think this is increasing in our modern day, like why this this attitude is increasing. Because like I said, I've been counseling for 10 years. I've seen a marked increase in the last two, like a huge increase actually in the last oh, two years. When the atheists and liberal college students try something, the church eventually picks it up four years or later. So here yeah. we are. So um, honestly, as Sean points out, this is not a new thing. So I'm not saying that our society invented it, but we have we have mastered it. Right? We have we have taken it to a new level, and we have definitely uh, uh, spread it pretty widely and pretty uh, succinctly within our culture and society. So why why do I believe that that's happening? I, I think it comes from a couple different places. And leaving aside the narcissistic explanation for it, so there are certain people who are narcissists, and they employ these tactics simply to get their way, 
right? Like the two-year-old who starts crying when you tell him no, right? That's, that's essentially what a narcissist is. I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to start crying because I want to get my way. And then what a narcissistic personality disorder is, is you just never grow out of that two-year-old mindset. You just constantly cry to get your way. But that's one explanation. But I think that there's a bigger one that that's more readily available in our culture, why it's happening. Because I've seen people in my counseling do it sincerely, meaning that I, I don't think they mean to do it but they are doing it nonetheless, uh, especially younger couples that I'm counseling. So uh, I think the biggest one, without almost without exception, when I'm talking to somebody and I see this behavior manifesting in them to a large extent, they almost never have a positive relationship with a father figure. Now that sounds weird and it sounds like it shouldn't really be a part of the conversation, but it really is. One of the major things that fathers add to kids that mothers are not as good at. So what mothers excel at is giving nurture and acceptance to children. Uh, I could speak from a, a personal experience. My wife is way better at that than I am, right? She is very good at nurturing them. She's very good at showing them that they belong, that they are welcome, that they are special, that they are loved, and that they are cared for. It's not that I don't do those things. It's just I'm not as good at them as she is. What fathers are really good at is rough and tumble play, right? And so if you see a mom playing with her kids, she's usually like, you know, really gently swinging them on the swing or, you know, like uh, holding them or, you know, doing something really gentle and sweet, blowing bubbles, things like that. You see a dad, you know, he's pushing his kid over, he's wrestling with him, you know, he's throwing him in the air, you know, like he's, he's doing all the dangerous dad stuff that dads get to do. You know, it's like, that's our birthright. What rough and tumble play does, right? It seems, and a lot of women, by the way, get upset about that. They're like, you just, you're just the fun guy, you know, you're, you know, not a disciplinarian, things like that. What rough and tumble play does actually, it's really, really important for kids is it teaches them give and take and it teaches them focused aggression that can be done out of love and an interest in play as opposed to violence. So when a dad throws his kid in the air, he's actually subjecting that kid to violence. He's overpowering them, but that violence is intended to make the kid happy, right? It's intended to actually bring them joy. And so the kid starts to learn, a kid who develops a good relationship with their father starts to learn, oh, when somebody pushes me, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're trying to hurt me. It could be actually that they're pushing me because they care about me. And maybe they see the conversation as being fun, right? Maybe they see, maybe they want to talk to me. Maybe they want to poke holes in my argumentation because they actually want to get to the bottom of something. Or maybe they just think it's fun to argue, right? There are other explanations as to why someone's talking to me about this particular thing. When you have a culture that that's uh, kind of demonized masculinity as a whole, uh, a culture that's increasingly fatherless, that doesn't have that dynamic in the home anymore, and even the homes that do have fathers, unfortunately, you have negative examples of masculinity, right? Abusive uh, manifestations of aggression and things like that. Kids are not learning as much and as widely the benefit of this kind of controlled aggression, right? How it could be a good thing. And so... It's very normal for someone when they feel pushed to feel oppressed, to feel traumatized, genuinely, right? Genuinely, they feel like they're being oppressed, they're being silenced, they're being, they're being violated in some way, they're being traumatized in some way. So when they're saying, I feel like this is, you're attacking me, they genuinely mean it. It's a bad thing, but they genuinely mean it. Now, this also doesn't let the person off the hook who's causing the offense. So if somebody, if I'm talking to my wife and she's like, man, you're being really mean right now. Now, again, she hasn't addressed what I've said, but maybe she's right. Maybe I am being a jerk. Maybe I'm yelling at her. Maybe I'm using an inappropriate demeanor. 
maybe I'm using language that's cutting, right? So it doesn't let you off the hook of being like, well, I'm just speaking the truth. And so you need to accept it, woman, you know? No, it's like, maybe there's something to what you're saying. Uh, I still want to have this conversation, but hey, I, I, I will work on that. I will work on the way that I communicate with you. That's good. That's a good give and take. A setting of a boundary rather than a dismissal of what's being said. Exactly, exactly. And so people who learn how to quantify this aggression, as Sean said, they set a boundary as opposed to abdicating the conversation as a whole, right? So they say, I don't like that you're talking to me that way. Whether or not they should be offended, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that they are offended. And if you're in the party that's causing offense, it's okay for you to say, okay, I'm going to adjust the way I'm communicating to better sink into the person that I care about, to better sink into this person that I'm trying to communicate with, right? Uh, another way to address it, so I actually had this happen yesterday. I was counseling someone and they were uh, claiming offense to what I was saying. They said, I, I feel like I'm being attacked right now. Now, it's very easy for me to say, because again, it's, it's increasing at a high level, right? It's increasing at a high level in my counseling ministry. So I, I could have just been like, okay, well, you feel attacked right now, then, then leave. You know, you, you obviously don't want to have a conversation with me. You don't want to take this seriously. You could just go. Now, a good way to approach this, uh, as opposed to doing that, is I paused and I said, okay, like, why do you feel threatened right now? Can you, can you tell me what I'm doing specifically? And, and I try my best to lower my voice so that it can't even be perceived as aggressive. And I say, okay, what am I doing? What am, what am, what am I communicating to you that is being received as attack? Right? What, what are my behaviors? What, is, what are the wording? What's going on? And that usually causes people to pause. And he was able to admit, he said, okay, you're not attacking me. I just feel threatened. I just don't like what you're saying. I'm like, okay, it's fine. We can work with that, right? But you have to give that person a pause and you have to be able to help them walk through what the offense is so that you can work through it together. And again, that's assuming that this person is on a, uh, a bona fide level, right? It's a good faith argument. They're, they're, they actually do want to talk to you but they are legitimately feeling threatened. You can calm that person down by talking in that manner, and you can help them approach the conversation in a better way. If you have a long-term uh, relationship with someone, you can over time develop communication tactics so that you can not cause offense. So there are things, uh, for instance, I have, I have one friend uh, that I've talked to before where it's, or I'll use a different example. There, there's someone that I've counseled before where she's had a history of being verbally abused by her father. And so when people raise their voice at her, she feels threatened and she feels attacked, right? It's not that she's actually being attacked, she just feels that way. And so for people to be able to maneuver around that, they've had to learn how to lower their voices when they're talking to her, right? And she's able to communicate that. You're not doing anything wrong, I'm just perceiving it this way because of this past, right? Because of what's happened in my past. And it's okay to say that to people and it's okay to navigate around it. The problem that we can get into is we could either become so stuck in our ways to be like, you're being sensitive, you're being overly sensitive, I have no reason to change the way I communicate because there's nothing wrong with what I'm saying, right? You could do that, but that you're essentially closing the door on that relationship. You're saying, I don't want to relate to you and I don't want to work through this with you. You just need to grow up and get over it. You're jumping um, to the judgment of them being swine as opposed to potentially salvaging a conversation that may or may not lead to a better direction. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other mistake that someone can make is to say, well, I feel offended. And unless you conform to this means of dialogue, unless you you become more soft in your dialogue, I'm not going to have any conversation with you, right? That's also equally shutting the door on that potential relationship. 
usually in order for something like this to work, people have to meet each other halfway. Be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to communicate with you on the levels that you want, but I'm going to try to meet you halfway, right? I'm going to try start doing little things to help you receive what I have to say to you. And usually, again, it, it usually goes from the male to the female, right? So the man is trying to do it. But it, like I said, in recent years, it's gone both ways. I've seen a lot of men on that way. And by the way, a lot of manly men, right? Uh, one of the guys I counsel, he's a firefighter and he struggles with that. And it's because of this, right? Didn't have a father in the home, doesn't know how to modulate aggression. And so all he knows how to do is when he feels aggression, he knows how to fight, but he doesn't, obviously you can't do that in the house. <laughs> so he has to, he has to learn how to control it. So he just shuts down, right? So there are many reasons as to why this is growing, but I would, I would say it's the big one, but any uh, last thoughts you have or, or Dave, do you have any thoughts about it? Me? Thoughts? Yeah. I mean, my dad, when I was a kid, used to throw me up in the air and then walk away. Is that is that offensive? Uh, no, I mean, depending on what's underneath you. <laughs> <laughs> Spikes or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> concrete. <laughs> right. No, it's it's a very, it's, it's funny in my lifetime, you know, seeing these trends and these, I mean, being offended is definitely kind of a hot word right now. That's offensive. I'm offended. It seems to be like a lot of people have been offended at you. A lot of people. You and your aggressive worship. (laughs) (laughs) Many a true word said in jest, Peter. Many a true word said in jest. No, very good. Very good stuff. Um, Yeah, just understand the difference between setting boundaries with people and actually dealing with the problem. If you are the problem, then like we talked about with ad hominem, it's a matter of getting back to what the conversation's about. And in this case, if you have cost defense, can be done so through humility. But a willingness to make yourself vulnerable also comes with it, knowing the difference between a dismissal and a boundary. That's the line. Good stuff. Well, speaking of um, you know, offense and being offended, we have a follow-up question. Yesterday we had uh, talk about the incident that happened recently, I guess, where there was a, a restaurant where a Christian group were refused service because they were concerned that um, their staff would uh, be attacked. A lot of their staff were LGBTQ community, that kind of thing. So they refused this Christian group from coming. Um, kind of a flip of the, um, the you know, the cake, cake making, shop. yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You know, so we kind of had discussion about that. But well, now it's in legislation. We're going to be basically subjected to the same treatment Alex Jones was if an activist chooses to target a church. Right. That's right. So Yari had a, a, a question, sent it in through our email, questionforhope at gmail.com. Thank you, Yari, for your question. Um, he shared that recently he had experience where he went into uh, a Chick-fil-A, you know, a known Christian establishment. Not anymore. And, uh, well, yeah. Christian-ish. 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 <laughs> they observe Christian-like. one aspect of a Judeo-inspired ethic, but Not go on. Not open on Sundays. Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eating chicken. <laughs> Feeding the flock. <laughs> Um, and he said a, a homeless man came in and was kind of rejected and not treated well. And the following day he was in a McDonald's, you know, a secular place, so to speak, um, and uh, was treated a lot better. So basically the question is, um, he, he found that to be a bit of a hypocrisy in how should we deal with hypocrites? Yeah, three things. First of all, give Chick-fil-A the benefit of the doubt because being in an organization that deals with homeless people from time to time, you rarely encounter them the first time without taking away some impressions. We don't, you don't know if, based on your experience, he had been belligerent or aggressive, that he had been harassing staff outside before, and they were setting a boundary or not. Now note, if a restaurant refuses service to someone, that's allowed. It's not a stand for religious liberties. Once again, Chick-fil-A is not a Christian organization, 
and don't really claim to be anymore. It's a chicken shop. McDonald's, on the other hand, if they are self-advertised and aggrandized as uh, secular and uh, some would argue an impediment to society's progress, but that's another conversation, they treat them well. Again, it's the same issue. They may have only seen this homeless man for the first time. Someone comes to them in need, they're willing to do it. Good on them. They did a good thing, but it's no more a reflection of McDonald's versus Chick-fil-A because we don't have the whole story. We need to be careful in rushing to conclusions. The third thing, though, and this is assuming all of the data is correct, and someone doesn't do something that's Christ-like, the key is... Don't follow the mistakes of those in front of, around, or before you. If someone doesn't act like Christ, that's not a mark against Christ. That's a mark against them. If someone behaves like Jesus, that's not a plus for them. That's showing that Jesus is a model worth following, and they got that. So again, if and I deal with this with my conversations with pagans all the time. Christians burn down shrines and stuff, and I say, how many shrines did Jesus burn down? And if they're honest, they'll say none. Usually they just change the topic and go on another rabbit trail. But the point being made is this. If a Christian doesn't act like Christ, they're by definition not acting like a Christian. If a restaurant business's staff employees don't act like restaurant business staff employees, then they are not acting like employees. If a Christian restaurant staff employee doesn't act like a Christian or a restaurant staff employee, you need to judge that on an individual basis, not as the whole. If Jesus modeled tending to the needs of the poor, then we as Christians do well to model that. If a Christian that you met or a Christian organization that you met or an organization you call Christian but isn't, didn't do that, that's on them, not on him. Make sure that you judge the religion on its founder, not on its abusers. Mm, very good. Anything to add to that? Think so? No. No. <laughs> that's good. You sound like you have something, but you just don't want to. No, that's okay. <laughs> he's he's uh, engaging in that fine art of thinking before he talks. That's right. Yeah. It's a great point, um, Sean. And to, I mean, to emphasize that, I remember, you know, years ago now, we had a pretty thriving kind of homeless ministry on Wednesday evenings. We, we used to do a meal before the service, and we had a lot of homeless population would come, and more and more came as we continued to do the meal. And I personally had experience one evening don't have to go into details but where i had to almost physically eject one of these men it was to to protect the other people you know it was a very it was a you know could have become a very violent situation and i learned a lot through that myself you know because feed the homeless and that kind of thing it sounds yeah. very good but it can be like you say it can be a very dangerous thing um once you open that door you you can get yourself into um some trouble so yeah, you have to be wise about it because you also don't know if those homeless people are going to adhere to social bylaws as they're traveling through these areas. We had yep. an uptick in complaint for crime reports. We had a, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I won't obviously mention names, but an individual who said, I'm vegan and didn't like the food that we were offering them. So we were more uh, pandering to entitlement rather than right. actually helping someone in need that we were catering to someone in want. Mm -hmm. And that's not what it's there for. The list goes on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great question, Yari. Thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you for being part of the show. Uh, question from Monica. She asks, can you please go over the res uh, resurrection of Lazarus? And uh, Jar is it Jarius? Jarius? Jarius. Jarius, daughter. And Jesus' resurrection and him being the first fruits. Thank you very much. Okay, so, so yeah. How is yeah. Uh, Jesus' yeah. resurrection the first fruits of people resurrected before him? Yeah, no, no, no. So it's actually a very good question, one that there's a lot of confusion about in Christendom. So you have to understand that the topic of the resurrection was a theological belief that derives from Daniel chapter 12. 
So in the resurrection of Lazarus is actually the greatest, uh, Jesus gives an interpretation of what's going on. So there was a belief in what's called the resurrection. The resurrection was not simply that dead people will come back to life, but it's that dead people will be reestablished in Edenic bodies, right? We're going to go back into the bodies that Adam and Eve were meant to have that will be immortal and immune to corruption and will be able to access God in perfect harmony for all of eternity. That was the idea of the resurrection. Uh, I think N.T. Wright, who talks a lot about the resurrection, he said, uh, the resurrection is life after life after death, right? So when you when you die, life after death is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your body stays on this earth and your soul, your consciousness goes to be with Christ in person in heaven. But then when he returns, we are raised in our bodies, right? That's what the resurrection is. Jesus, when he was raised, the first fruits, he was the first person to actually achieve that resurrection body. So Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what happened to him? He died again. You know, Jairus' daughter, once again, she was raised from the dead, but she died again. She wasn't raised in a resurrection body. She was raised in the body that she already had. She just went from a state of death into a state of living. So in other words, what Jesus did is he was able to recombine the soul with the body, right? So the soul had left, the consciousness had left the body. Jesus was able to to put it back in, if you want to put it that way. He was able to bring them back. The the better word for it is actually resuscitation, right? He resuscitated them. Uh, he didn't actually give them the resurrection body that's promised to all of us later on. There are actually resuscitations in the Old Testament as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Elijah uh, performs one on the widow's son in, I think it's First Corinthians, uh, First Kings chapter 17. And then later on, Elijah, when he dies, he's actually dumped into a pit and the guy's body who's down there is resuscitated in coming in contact with his. So uh, that's uh, interesting instances within the Bible in which people are resuscitated. But the resurrection of Jesus was a wholly unique instance in which Jesus didn't just get resuscitated. It's not like he just walked out of the tomb in the same body that he died in and then he died again later. He was resurrected in an immortal incorruptible body. He showed off the new model, if you want to put it that way. He showed off mankind 2.0, and therefore he's the first fruits, right? And that's what the first fruits were for an agrarian society, right? You, when you had your crop seasons, you'd have the first buddings. And the first buddings would tell you like the crops coming, right? It showed you, it gave, a, it gave you a foretaste of what was coming. And that's what Jesus did. He showed off the first fruits, what the resurrection bodies will be like. Very good. Monica, great question. Thank you. Thank you for that, for being part of the broadcast. Um, had a <laughs> comment from uh, Yari re- regarding what we were talking about, being af- offended and the way that we speak. Um, he said, Peter Martin comments, soldiers and sergeants should also change their demeanor when uh, when they speak coming from military background. Why? <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know whether he means coming out of a military you know, and, and, and uh, coming into, you know, civilian life. Mm. Or is it, I don't know, in the military, is it kind of the drill sergeant thing you see in all the movies? You've seen it firsthand. Yeah. Is that changing now it. where <laughs> they have to approach people like, I don't mean to offend you, but could you shine your shoes next time? <laughs> is it becoming like that? I don't want to impose anything yeah. upon you. <laughs> Far be it from me. Far be, I mean, you know, you, you do what you want. You know? <laughs> so I went through boot camp in 2008. So that was 14 years ago. I can't really speak to what boot camp looks like now. I'll mm. tell you that when I went through it, it was very much the full metal jacket treatment. You know, mm. you are you are treated like a piece of meat. You're yelled at. They uh, they wear the full brim hat. 
they, you know, everything that you see in, in that movie is, is fairly really? accurate. You know, they, they do. I got nowhere else to go. Yeah. <laughs> That's Wayne's World too. Oh. <laughs> no, it was Officer and Gentleman. <laughs> but, uh, probably also Wayne's World. Too. I remember. But uh, no, absolutely. So that that was the demeanor that they took. Now, it, now it has a purpose, and there is debate in Christianity. So I'm going to give you a very simple answer, and then I'm going to give you a more complex one, and I'll let you uh, uh, add in whatever you got on it as well. I know nothing. <laughs> I see nothing. So Yes, you do. Speak up. <laughs> Name that movie. Like. <laughs> so militaries have always struggled with how do you get people to be in a military mindset, especially in the modern day, right? You have to break down the individuality of somebody and make them a part of a whole, right? That's what the military is. It is an organism. That's how it works. And so you have to consider yourself as just a small part of a greater whole. And especially in our highly individualistic culture, that's the opposite of how you're raised to think. You're raised to think that you are an individual and the whole exists for you. Mm. So it takes a lot of violence to actually break someone of that belief system and to bring them down into a moldable level where they can become a part of something that exists prior to them, to adjust to all the various uh, traditions and ceremonies and things like that that regard the military. That is something that's necessary. Now, uh, some people have argued, this is the more complicated answer, some people have argued, is this the best way to do it? Is the best way to do it to psychologically damage someone and emotionally haze them for three months and get them into that mindset? Probably not. Uh, the reason why I say probably not be is because I know the guys that I went through boot camp with and that major shock to your psyche, it really only becomes efficacious and long-term is if somebody totally engages in that lifestyle for the rest of their life. But if somebody goes into the boot camp and then leaves boot camp and goes back to hang out with friends and family, they're like, eh, I don't like this. And they actually mm. uh, just kind of adopt the dual mentality. When they're in service, when they're in the military, they act one way. When they're out of the military, they act another way. I think a more effective manner of doing it would be to have a greater level of training, right? To just teach people uh, instead of doing a three-month boot camp to do like a year boot camp, right? To have someone really just inundated in this kind of belief system. So like military schools. Uh, attempted to do this and things like that. But once again, the, the level of hazing that they utilize to accomplish that goal, it just depends. It's essentially, hazing is the shortest uh, line between two points, right? Breaking down the individual and getting them to adopt all the mentalities that they want for them. Mm -hmm. Hazing is the shortest way to do it. Is it the most effective? I have questions about that. Uh, the other reason why hazing is inculcated in, into you and that kind of aggressive lifestyle is because I don't know if you knew this, but the military is kind of an aggressive job. Uh, you you kind of have to be able to deal with violence. If you didn't know that, I really? I, don't, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> you know, that's that's it. You have to encounter not faux violence, kind of like we were talking about at the top, where you're talking about disagreements and things like that. You have to encounter people that actually want to kill you, mm -hmm. and you have to be able to respond to that and potentially use lethal force on individuals who are threatening your life and the lives of others. So hazing can accomplish that goal, but once again, it's not as effective as other means. If you want uh, a more full discussion on this, you could read my book, Fellowship of Suffering, where I do talk about why the military does what it does in order to get soldiers ready for combat and potential killing. But I also talk about some of the side effects that comes from that type of training and maybe a more effective way that you could have done it. So uh, if, if, that in, if that topic interests you, you could read my book. I'm, I'm not really aware personally, of other books that have attempted to broach this topic in any uh, depth, but, you know, that's that's it. I'm not saying they're not out there. I'm just saying I'm not aware of them. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for 
commenting on that. Thanks, Yari. A uh, question from Torbeth. Torbeth. How does the Antichrist survive the wound to his head? Is it literal or symbolic, this fatal head wound? Well, I guess it ties into, is anything in prophecy literal or symbolic? And there's three general rules in Bible interpretation. First, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. I'll say that again slower so you can follow. If the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. If it's impossible for us to reconcile someone recovering or even experiencing a head wound, if a head wound, say, for example, takes place to a nation, you say, okay, this is symbolic. It's not like the nation's a literal body and that the chasm that contains the brain and government and stuff got somehow physically injured. It's not a physical entity. It's a spiritual thing. <clears throat> if, on the other hand, we have every reason to conclude, and Peter Martin uh Pastor Scott Richards and I, we all would hold a pretty cohesive view on the end times. We believe the Antichrist is a literal figure. Then to say he couldn't have a head wound is not nonsense. So the point being made would be that. Do we have reason to believe this ought to be symbolic? The second is, of course, the immediate context. If it's presented symbolically, then it's meant to be taken symbolically. If it's referencing something literal, then it should be taken as literal. And, of course, Revelation 13, where it describes one of his heads, plural, <laughs> already in an interesting ballpark, was wounded and he recovered from it, and all the nations said, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? Uh, the beast of the sea, by the way, that's the Antichrist. Obviously, that's a symbolic passage, but the question is, is its execution, is its interpretation meant to be a symbolic, uh, I guess, economic catastrophe that he recovers from or a, uh, you know, fracturing of the union that he brings everyone back together in a nationalistic sense or whatever? And the answer, I think, also is no, because, again, though it is in a symbolic context, those are references to things that have been explained, and that's the third. If it's been explained before... It won't be. If it hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. In Revelation 13, we've got, I think the last time I checked, around 12 quotations <laughs> to the Old Testament minimum. And again, I'm just spitballing a basic number there. If we look at the, the beast having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads and horns a blasphemous name, that takes me right back to the book of Daniel chapter 7 and four as well in certain situations, uh, but seven in particular where it notes the four beasts, the visions that were given to Daniel, and this fearsome beast also having seven heads and ten horns, it's explained to him what this is. It's a world-dominating empire where the horns are the kings, the heads are the figureheads. So we have this explained to us as a literal kingdom and the horns being literal political entities, human beings, but representing human power. So all that then taken in, if one of the heads is mortally wounded and heals, then I have to take that one step at a time. Okay, is it irrational to take literally, or could a political figure be assassinated? That happens all the time. I think that's completely rational. Could someone recover from a mortal head wound and live and gain the admiration of the whole world? Yes, that interpretation's sound. 
The question is, will it? Is that the intended conclusion? And I think based on other passages, you can look this up in the book of Zechariah, for example, Torbeth, where it notes that this man of sin, the cruel king of the north, the Assyrian, he'll have his right eye darkened and his right arm shriveled. Some commentators have taken that to be a reference to the fallout of this mortal head injury, but that he'll recover. There's theories as to how this will play out. But I think the best place to lay your groundwork is in Second Thessalonians chapter two, where it notes God handing them over to their uh, they have no love for the truth, so God will give them up to a lie. If they don't want Jesus Christ, they'll be given Antichrist. And what made Jesus Christ different from any other religious figure in history? A resurrection from the dead. So if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, as the saying goes. I have every reason to believe that this is a literal resurrection that he will either stage. That's This is the question. Is it a staged resurrection? Is it a satanically permitted resurrection? Or is it a satanically deceived resurrection? And this is where the semantics come in. Does the uh, falling out of heaven, the dragon, at the halfway point of the tribulation, mean he possesses his corpse and then brings him back. That's the position of the Left Behind novels. There's people who've been saying that it, of course, was all a sham, and I think there is grounds to that because the working of Satan is lying wonders. See Second Thessalonians 2 again. And on and on it goes. But uh, as far as literal or symbolic in any passage, Torbeth, that's the rules that we need to apply. Is it plainly sensical? <laughs> If it's referenced or quoted or explaining something that happened before, and then test your conclusion as much as the interpretation, is this rational? I think that as long as you approach the Bible in a futurist position, then to say that the Antichrist head wound being literal is completely rational. Now, there's other views in the end times as a whole, and you need to be sensitive to those worldviews. People who would say that this is all symbolic, people who would be preterists and say this was all fulfilled in history, you'd have to take them on a case-by-case basis, and it gets kind of sloppy. But our approach is that the Bible means what it says, no malice or (laughs) offensive language intended to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are preterists or symbolists or panist, if you want to refer to that. They just think it'll all pan out in the end. But we encourage further study of God's Word. Rather, You, you get that one. <laughs> uh, we encourage further study in God's Word, and we think that the most consistent approach is, yes, it is presented in the context of symbolism, but given our hermeneutic, our method of interpreting the Bible, it is very consistent to say this is a literal event, that he'll have a head wound, but he will heal from it, and he'll gain the adoration of the world as a result. And from that, he'll springboard in the great tribulation, which even then God is only permitting for a short time. Very good. Anything to add to that? How how could you possibly? How could you? (laughs) Yeah, very good. Great question, Tom. Thank you for the question and for being part of the broadcast today. A question from Nina. Is nakedness at times a type of sin? Could Adam and Eve and Noah's nakedness after being uh, drunk a type of sin? And part two to the question is, if Jesus was crucified naked, could that be because he had become sin for our salvation? And like the first man, um, Adam, death was needed to cover that sin. So is there something about nakedness itself that is uh, sinful? Maybe no. some more than others? No, just <laughs> no, no, no. So th- there's no instance in the Bible where it says that nakedness itself is sinful. The, uh, the commendation from God to wear clothing is a result of us living in a fallen state. So the, the body itself is not sinful. It's man's perversion of the body that becomes sinful. So in other words, mm-hmm. if we were 
in the pre-fallen state, a pure state of innocence, and we saw nudity, we saw nakedness, we would not assign any type of sexuality to it, right? We would just be like, oh, okay, like, that person's naked. And if you want to see this, look at little kids, right? Little kids run around naked. They don't really think anything of it. Uh, they don't see any type of abuse in it. I mean, depending on the age and what that kid has been subjected to, but for the most part, kids under five don't equate nakedness or nudity with any type of sexuality or sensuality. So because of that, there's an innocence, there's a purity in the way that they look at those things. There's no temptation to lust. There's no temptation for them to abuse that nakedness in any particular way. And so when people are naked in the privacy of their own homes, or if they're naked in front of their prospective partner, right? So uh, nudity within a marital context in the act of sex that's obviously prescribed within the Bible as being good. Uh, the Bible sometimes utilizes actually uncovering the nakedness of someone as to be a euphemism for sex. This is in Leviticus chapter 19, where it talks about having uh, sexual intimacy with near of kin, and it talks about uncovering their nakedness, right? That's what it means. Uh, the, the reason why is because there's, again, there's that sense of vulnerability. I'm seeing you in your innocence. I'm seeing you in your vulnerability. I'm I am engaging in something very private with you. That's why we call it our private parts. Uh, that level should be restricted or saved for the exclusivity of marriage. That's why it would be wrong for someone to be an exhibitionist, right? It would be wrong for a woman to go out and just show herself in a naked uh, form, right? To to either sell her pictures or to uh, just exhibit herself in front of other people. Uh, same with a man. That would be a wrong thing to do because that's something that is restrained and restricted to the exclusivity of the marital bed. So when Jesus is stripped naked, the reason why he's stripped naked is it's, again, that vulnerable state, right? So tyrants would do that oftentimes. They would strip people naked uh, before they tortured them or executed them and things like that. Part of it is for cruelty's sake. Right when you are naked, there are uh, there's sensitivities to your skin that the clothing obviously covers up. Uh, especially Jesus being on a cross, right, having the nakedness of his back uh, scraping up against that thing would be much more painful than just having uh, a clothed back. Mm. So there there there's cruelty purposes, but there's also just uh, denigration purposes to to exhibit somebody like that is to denigrate them, is to humiliate them. So there are many times where again tyr tyrannical people have exhibited the people that they have abused and oppressed in a naked form for that reason, to remove their humanity, as it will, and their sense of self and their sense of privacy, uh, their right to privacy. That would be one of the reasons why that happens. Now, I think that is an interesting interpretation that God allowed his son to be stripped naked as a sign of kind of a reversal of Eden, that Jesus, that Adam and Eve essentially were naked in innocence, and then they ended up sinning against God and having to be clothed as a result. And then Jesus, being the only innocent man, being stripped naked against his volitional will and mocked. I think that's a really interesting take. I mean, I know that's not what you said specifically, but uh, I think that is an interesting way of looking at it to say, like, there is an interesting reversal of Eden where Jesus is undoing the curse and he's doing that through being subjected to humiliation and nakedness. Uh, I think that's that's a very interesting take on it. Uh, but once again, nakedness in and of itself is not is not wrong or sin. Anything like to add to that? Yeah, there was a quote where uh, I think it was Michelangelo, one of the 
more uh, famous artistes and sculptors where he had a tendency to do unclothed work, and his teacher said, why is it that that is common with you? And he says, I want to see people as God sees people. And then his teacher wisely asked him, but are you God? Hmm. The only thing that makes nakedness a problem is our separation from God, and we've dealt with people, uh, people in nudist colonies, for example, who say, well, if we just make this not culturally taboo, then we fix the issue of the heart. But we as Christians don't take that worldview. We say that until the heart is changed, culture is going to conform regardless with this as the constant. So the idea of shame, vulnerability associated with nakedness, that's not the issue. That's not the symbol of sin. The symbol of sin is us because we are that symbol. We will rebel and pervert and twist everything good that God has made. By default, it's only an inward and outward work of the Holy Spirit that will make these things, and note this, ultimately restored back to the way they were intended to be. Until then, it is right for us, and as you said with exhibition, to recognize and be sensitive to this universal status of shame and not to take advantage of, or to quote Paul, defraud our brother in this matter. So for someone who's a nudist and would say, well, you know, I'd like to take it back to how it was when God created me perfect in the garden. And so I'm, I just walk around naked and you know, what would, what would be of the perspective on, on that, that they're not really considering the, yeah, <laughs> that they're thinking that if they change culture, that they will change the heart. Yeah. I like uh, one, one theologian put it this way. So there was a French philosopher who I legitimately think was, a demonic influencer, right? A terrible, terrible guy, right? <laughs> like many French philosophers. Yeah. Uh, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he had a famous quote that said, uh, we are born free, but everywhere in chains. Uh, and that was the idea, that you're born in a liberated state as a baby, but then society imposes restrictions upon you that remove from your bodily autonomy and your freedom and individuality. Uh, so in other words, he's denying that societal constraints have any good utility. And he believes that in order for us to be free, we need to remove the shackles of them. Uh, one theologian reworded his statement in a way that makes more sense. He says, uh, it would be better stated, we are born naked, but then everywhere we are clothed. And what he means by that is you're born in a state of innocence, but you don't remain there. And so you have to put things around yourself because we are fallen in order to compensate for man's fallen nature. And no matter how uh, revivified, no matter how sanctified you are, that fallenness remains. So uh, a Christian church, for instance, couldn't say, well, you know, we're beyond the fall, so therefore we're kind of beyond government. You know, we could just kind of self-govern. We could just move to a place and we'll all just treat each other well. And, you yeah. know, we we don't need money either. We're just all going to do the right thing. And, and you know, Adam and Eve didn't get married. They never gave marriage vows to one another. They mm -hmm. just committed themselves to each other and God accepted that. So, you know, we're beyond making vows and commitments because we're just perfect. Mm -hmm. No, those things exist because you're fallen. Yeah. They exist because you're fallen. You are born naked, but everywhere you have to put on clothes. There is a compensation for the fallenness of human nature that we have to respect. Otherwise, we're going to fall into many taboos and many issues, right? So uh, someone who believes, well, I could just do away with it, uh, it never really works. So when you look at cultures that have become more and more promiscuous with their dress, does it ever work? Does it ever remove the fallen, lustful behavior within those cultures? And the answer is 
no, right? So I remember when I was a, a student in school all those many, many moons ago, and they would show us like these more tribalistic cultures and they would be like, oh, like, look at how, how beautiful it is. You know, these women are just like breastfeeding out in the open and it's no big deal. And, uh, you know, men are just wearing loincloths and, you know, this is kind of like a pure, more naturalistic state. But then you do a little research on those cultures and you're like, ah, it's not exactly the utopia fairyland that they sold to us when we were in school. There's a lot of sexual perversion that occurs within those cultures. So yeah. uh, the idea that you could just remove the uh, the sensuality of the human body by making it commonplace is just not true. You can't yeah. do that. There's something fallen in us and therefore clothing becomes a compensatory nature that we need to abide by mm. in our fallen state. Mm. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Nina, thanks for that quite great question. Great discussion. Very interesting to talk through those things. Uh, thank you for that. A uh, question from uh, Anna Marie. Uh, she's asking about this this somewhat new movement uh, called uh, uh, where people are doing a centering prayer. I don't know if you've heard of that, familiar yeah. with that, basically where they focus on one word that's supposed to make them closer to God and they do the centering prayer. Um, mm -hmm. She shares her belief is that um, we should pray through Christ to God and not focus on a single word but are you familiar with centering prayer and yeah it's another i guess attempt to out bible the bible through ritual the intent i guess is fine in that you want to meditate on god's word but the emphasis is that that word is supposed to be not singular but a cohesive revelation of god's character obviously you understand or interpret that significance from scripture I think that's fine as far as giving yourself maybe a lighthouse to prevent ADD vacations during times of prayer. But when it comes to Scripture's instruction, this should always be how we approach God. It should always be informed. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he didn't just say one word and say, focus on that. He gave them, I don't, I can't count the words in my head, but basically a, a series of words that put together a sentence and then another sentence followed after that, which was also composed of more than one word. So if you have a personal conviction, this will be my caveat, to say, you know, this just helps me focus on who I'm talking to, great. But if you say, oh no, this is a new move of the Spirit and how we can truly connect with God by meditating on a single word, well, even if it is in light of Scripture, that's not scripture either make sure that you test all things and hold fast to what is good if it's encouraging prayer great but if it's trying to outdo the bible that's the problem when it comes to god and our communication with him he wants us to meditate on more than one word with him he wants us to share our hearts he wants us to share our circumstances he wants us to share our wills with him and ultimately the purpose of prayer isn't to meditate just on god but to align your will your heart with his so if, again, the time is spent trying not to get distracted, opportunity to grow there. But the purpose of prayer isn't just meditation for its own sake. That would be a few of the things I see wrong with it. Uh, yeah, so this comes from Eastern mythology. So in Eastern theology, there's a concept of the divine being accessed through separation from our physicality, right? Mm -hmm. So you could try this right now, uh, repeat any word, pick any word at random and repeat it 50 times. By the time you get to probably 20, that word's going to start sounding really weird to you, right? So words lose their sense if you repeat them enough. And so the intent of using centering prayer within Eastern mythology or Eastern theology 
is to utilize either a sound, a rhythm, or a mantra, that's the word that they use, in order to empty yourself of thought so that you're more aware and accessing the spiritual. Uh, The Bible is not a dualistic book. The Bible actually believes in the marriage of flesh and spirit. So if you're going to access God, it's not going to be through your uh, pure mystical consciousness just contemplating the grand things of God. It's going to be through you accessing God through his representation in the world. Now, again, we're not pantheists. We don't believe that God is the world. But we do believe that God has made his, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, he has made his invisible attributes known to us through the world. So when we're meditating, as Sean said, it's not about emptying ourselves of thought. It's about actually conforming our thoughts to God, right? That's why prayer is made up through intentional conscious thought. Jesus even says, don't be like the pagans who think that they're heard by their many words. The the word that he actually uses there is, is babbling, right? They're babbling. They're, they're saying nonsense because they think that that somehow gets God's attention. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. When you pray, it's supposed to be intentional, it's supposed to be thoughtful, and he gives them a structure that they're supposed to pray through, which is really, really cool and beautiful. And many uh, pastors and theologians throughout the last 2,000 years have commented on the Lord's Prayer and exegeted it in very beautiful ways. I'd encourage you to look at some of them. Uh, but yeah, so that would be the, the fundamental distinction. The meditation that is presented in the Bible is a filling yourself of thought and contemplating it through the realm of God. The Eastern mysticism is emptying yourself of thought and emptying yourself of physicality that you might access the spiritual. Um, there are different worldviews. Very good. Thank you. Well, thank you for that question, Anna Marie. Great question. Thank you, guys. We're out of time for today. Peter, thank you. It's great to have you back. Sean, thank you. It's great that you're still here <laughs> with us. Hey, if you're in the Tucson area looking for a place to fellowship, Calvary Christian Fellowship, we're right by Prince and I-10, just off the freeway. <laughs> There, this Christmas, we have a Christmas Eve service, which will be at 6 p.m. And uh, Christmas Day, 9.30 a.m., just the one service for Christmas Day. It falls on a Sunday. So uh, do consider joining us. And don't forget to to like and share and subscribe and all those good things. If you share us around, we'd love to reach more people. So invite someone along. We'll see you uh, same time tomorrow. God bless you. Thank you for being part of A Reason for Hope. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.